Welcome to the teaching ministry at Magnolia's First. We hope the next few minutes will help you take your next steps on your faith journey. And we would love to help you take those next steps. Just head over to m1bc.org and fill out the connect form and a pastor will get in touch with you very soon. Or you can text us at 281-343-3033. Well, good morning. Happy Labor Day. This is the final Sunday that we will be in this series on Tell Me the Story, and I'm going to kind of miss that. Matter of fact, I'm thinking about putting that on my phone just so I can remember it. This morning, our message has been illustrated by Addie Satterwhite, daughter of Sarah and Thomas. And so we want to say thank you to Addie for her fine artwork. Would you say thank you with me? Great looking family. We are going to be in Mark chapter 7. We are going to be talking about the Ten Commandments and how they are being responded to in the ministry of Jesus as he is talking to those that are asking him the question why he is not following the law the way they think he should. And so we're going to talk about the difference between a mountain and a molehill. But to do that, I want to take just a moment and give us a little bit of context because sometimes as I'm talking with people about the Old Testament in particular, people will say things like this. I was doing fine reading through the Bible until I got to Numbers. And then I tripped into Leviticus. And it just seemed like regulation after regulation and rule after rule. And I just got so worn out. And here's what I want you to think about for a moment. I want you to think about that if you look at the Old Testament, you see the Ten Commandments. In addition to the Ten Commandments, there are 603 other laws that are prescribed for a total of 613 laws. And if you were the Lord and you are taking a people that had been literally for 400 years in a foreign nation under foreign government and for much of that time were slaves and you are bringing them into a new place, you have to tell them how they're going to live with each other. And 613 laws is just not that much. Especially if you note the fact that on September 1st, this past Friday, Texas enacted 774 new laws. You are regulated by thousands of laws in the state of Texas. One of the things that they did in the new law is they took away the Class C misdemeanor status if you were walking down a road where there was a sidewalk that adjoined you so that it was okay for you to be in that road. Because up until then, they could arrest you. Some of you were lawbreakers. But the caveat is that the sidewalk has to be impassable. It has to be dangerous. has to be covered with ice. has to be obstructed. But it's no longer illegal to walk in the street. you got to admit, we have some interesting laws in Texas. You know, in the state of Texas, if you have a motor vehicle on the road, you have to have windshield wipers. But you don't have to have a windshield. <laughs> in Texarkana, if you're going to ride a horse in the city limits after dark, your horse has to have taillights. <laughs> I 
And I'm going to tell you, if this church was located in El Paso, Texas, we could be cited this morning because every public meeting house or public gathering place, including bus terminals, train stations, airports, and churches, have to have at least one large spittoon available. <laughs> and I looked. I can't find a spittoon anywhere in here. We have some interesting laws. So I think we could maybe understand, and this context is important for the conversation Jesus is about to have in Mark, because we sometimes look and we say, gosh, they were just so full of rules. But the reality was those 613 laws were so that they could learn how to live and walk together. But you see, they did something. Because they were so concerned about people breaking laws, they added some other thoughts. They were called fence laws. Because they would try to build a fence around the law so that if you didn't cross the fence, you got nowhere near breaking that law. That makes sense? It's kind of like if you had a child and you said, I don't want you to play in the street so you can play on the driveway, but here's a line, don't cross it. And I'm going to tell you, I have never seen a parent say, the yellow line's that one in the middle of the street. They've always said, that line is back here because they know children. And children by nature will dance on that line. There is something about that line that is so intriguing. It's in our nature to go to the edge. And so they built laws. Matter of fact, they built 39 laws around the law in the Ten Commandments about keeping the Sabbath holy just to make sure you did not do any work on the Sabbath. So, for instance, it was not allowed for you to spit on the Sabbath. Because if you spit and it hit the dirt and it moved the dirt, it was considered plowing. You weren't allowed to swat and kill a fly on the Sabbath. Because if you got it, it was considered hunting. And ladies, you are not allowed to look at any reflective surface on the Sabbath. Because if you looked and you saw a gray hair, you might be inclined to pluck it out. So can you imagine with these 1,500 fence laws, 613 legitimate laws, that as Jesus is walking along this earth and as he is doing things, that they're looking at going, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not how we live. Jesus gave them a whole different way of understanding. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash them. There are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And when the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Why don't they follow our rules? 
Let's pray. Father, as we are looking in your word, I pray, God, that, that we would understand the, the context, but also, God, the application of your word into our lives today. And as we talk about understanding whether something is actually a mountain or a molehill, I pray that we would even be open in our own lives for the things that, that we have gathered to ourselves as rules, that we have treated like they are equal to what you have said, instead of just understanding they're about our preferences and our choice. For we pray it in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Why don't your disciples live like us? Why don't they show the proper respect? Why don't they do the things that we know the elders have taught us to do to demonstrate that we are living a life of purity? The Pharisees were joined by the scribes or the attorneys that were coming out of Jerusalem. These were some heavy hitters coming to Jesus to talk to him about the law. And you need to know something about the Pharisees. And you, it's too many times when we say the word Pharisee, we immediately go to the negative. But I want you to remember that the Pharisees was a group that had emerged about 150 years before Jesus walked the earth. And their intention was, how do we recover holiness? Because they looked out at Israel and they said, these people do not acknowledge God. They are not walking with a heart that is pointed toward God. What do we do to recover the holiness that God has called us to live at as a nation? And in so doing, they begin to live a particular way. And they begin to follow the traditions of the elders in a very strict way. As a way of calling people to repentance. But what had started with the heart of how we pull people toward God, as it often is the case, ended up moving over to how do we act like our hearts are for God? How can I make sure you know that I'm a good person? And it had a whole lot more to do with outward appearance for some than it should have. And it was causing a barrier. They, they wanted priestly purity with the people, but they had elevated oral traditions equal to the words of God. And you need to know something. Anytime you elevate your own thoughts equal to God, you have just tried to push them over God. They were telling people there's a right way to live. We're living it. And you ought to follow us. You ought to be like us. And one of those oral traditions that they spoke of to Jesus and to his disciples was in the area of hand washing. Now, I don't know about you, but I think washing your hands is a good choice. There's a lot of places in life where I think washing your hands is a good choice to do next. It's important to do that. I think about that every time. I cut a jalapeno, and then after I finish pulling out the seeds, I reach up and touch my eye and realize something. That was not smart. <laughs> Hand washing can be very helpful. But this wasn't about hygiene. This was about methodology. This was about frequency. This was about showing separation because the action of hand washing, if you've ever been to the Temple Mount and you go right before you get to the Western Wall, there's a fount there with copper cups with different handles on them so that the handle that you touch 
when you take the cup as you wash is not the handle that you set it back with so that you can stay clean. It's very intentional, very focused. Not only that, it was a desire to show a separation between what is holy and what is common. And they wanted to proclaim, we are holy and separated out by God, and we are not part of what's common. We are not part of the great unwashed. And they separated themselves from the people and said, we're not like you. We do it the right way. We're the ones that show holiness. You're the ones who need holiness. They wanted their outward actions to demonstrate they were not common, but holy. They wanted everybody to know, I live separately and different from you. And so, you know, it's fair to ask the question, isn't hand washing in the Bible? I mean, wouldn't I find it if I was to read through those laws? I will tell you, there are samples of hand washing in the Old Testament, but nowhere near what they were describing. Let me just give you a couple of samples that are found in the Old Testament. In Exodus 29.4, God says, You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. So as part of the preparation for priesthood, as God was initiating the priesthood, he told Moses, you bring Aaron down, you bring down his sons, and we're going to ritually cleanse them as a way of showing that they are being separated. Also, it was a way to respond to impurity or uncleanliness. It says in Exodus 30 that there was to be a basin of bronze between the tent of meeting and the altar. And it says in verse 19, Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. And when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, burnt food before the Lord they shall wash with water so they will not die the idea was if you're going to come before God you come before God clean and so ritually the way that they demonstrated that was through washing it was a way to purify it was a way to demonstrate that something had been unclean it was made clean and so you for instance would have a house that had mildew in it and there was a process that you would go through to remediate it and if the mildew was cured then there was a washing that took place to demonstrate this house is now clean and that was for the case for many other times where there was a question about ritual purity but also it served as a witness, a proof, a testimony. Because as I said, they're starting a new nation. So the question was, what happens when someone is murdered and is found between two cities and there's no witnesses? Nobody can be found that was able to bring a witness to what happened. Whatever city was the closest to it, the elders were called to come out and to stand and to attest to the fact that they knew nothing about what had happened. And when they did that, it says in Deuteronomy 21, 6, and all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley as a way of saying we're about to do a sacrifice as a guilt offering to say, God, this was not us. We know nothing about this. It was a way to say, I stand before you with clean hands. But nowhere in the scripture, nowhere in the scripture can you find the actions of hand washing like the actions that they were doing at the time that Jesus walked this earth. 
It was a laborious, it was a performance, and it wasn't about God. It was about being seen. It was about demonstrating outwardly what was not necessarily true inwardly. They had taken instructions that were meant to be fallen in a specific instance, and they had expanded them in scope. They had expanded them in breadth as a demonstration of personal holiness. And while it may have begun as well-meaning, it had evolved into an empty ritual that was built on the traditions of men and not on God. And you know something? They took a molehill, hand-washing, and they elevated to a mountain. And said that was what was critical. And you know something? You and I, we, we can do the same thing today. We can do the same thing today. Some of you came from churches or came from homes where as you grew up, you were not allowed to play with cards. Because cards were from the devil. I don't know where the devil prints his cards. But they're from the devil. And so you would have special card games like Old Maid that were acceptable because it was hard to gamble with them. You still could. <laughs> Some of you grew up being taught that you can't throw dice because that's the devil's bones. And so instead you had to flick a spinner because that's not gambling. And you know, we laugh at that, and we think, how silly. I mean, I remember being taught I could not go to a movie on Sunday. Yes, Lord. <laughs> you can't go to a movie on Sunday. Isn't the real issue what movie you went to on Saturday? But there was things that you could do during the week on your time that you weren't supposed to do on Sunday. God's time. And so when we think about how silly it was that you can't spit because you're going to disturb dirt, that could be plowing. I just want to remember, I want us to be reminded that all of us have got some kind of spinner moment in our life. And it may not be about a spinner, it may not be about dice, it may not be about cards, but there are some things that you have probably acted upon or feel about that has nothing to do with the Word of God. And it's just about preference. Because we can get that way about Bible translations. I mean, I've literally seen churches and have had to be in meetings where people were upset because they weren't using the King James Version of the Bible. And so I have questions. Which one? And they go, you know, the one Paul used. I've, these, these are quotes. And I said, well, would you like to see the original 1611? Because what you have in your head is not the original. It's the ninth translation of that translation. Because if you read the original, you'd be going, who could read this? Because it's very difficult. I've seen people get upset about worship music. I've walked out of church and had people, not this church, but I've had people in church service come in and say, Preacher, what do you think? I don't think that's really worship music. Do you? Well, I don't know. We sang Amazing Grace. I felt pretty good about it. 
Anything that we elevate that is a preference, that we elevate to principle, and we elevate to a point of demand, is taking a molehill and making it a mountain. It's okay to have a preference in music. It's okay to have a preference in Bible translation. I have preferences. That's not the problem. It's when I start acting like if you don't choose what I choose, something must be wrong with you. And trust me, if there's something wrong with you, it's not that. <laughs> I did not say there's anything wrong with you. If your friends looked at you, that's, all, that's between the two of you. But the reality is Jesus responded to them in Mark 7, 6, and he says this. And he said to them, well did Isaiah the prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he calls them a hypocrite. And there's never been a time that a hypocrite is a great compliment. And he talks to them about the actors that they would have seen on, on stage, not on the Sabbath, mind you, but they could have seen on stage that would be playing two different parts that would be holding two different masks. And then depending on what part they were playing, they would put on that mask. And he said, that's what you're like. You put on one mask in the public but there's a different face in private. And you have taken your traditions and you've elevated them. And by doing so, you've even taken the commandments of God and devalued them to the place where you found a way around them. Jesus reaches all the way back to Isaiah 29 to respond to their challenge. He enters this stream of prophecy found in Isaiah 28 and 29 that what their mouth is saying does not line up with what your heart is revealing. They had let go of the truth of God and clung instead to the traditions of men and they had elevated their thoughts over God's. And he goes on to them and says this in verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. Now, what was he responding to? He says, He's going to contrast their position of hand washing, which is a molehill, with another practice they followed, which allowed them to disregard the commandment of God. He says, you've rejected the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you handed down. And many such things do you do. And Jesus takes them all the way back to the book of Exodus, to that Mount Sinai. And he says, remember when God took the stone and he took his finger and he wrote the commandments for you. Remember when God did that and those were placed there in the Holy of Holies in the Ark of the Covenant. He says, I want, to, I want you to pause for a moment. You're worried about hand washing a molehill while you're neglecting a commandment that God wrote with his finger because you found a way to get around it. Now, let's just remember about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments clearly are Ten Commandments. There is a set of four, then a set of six. The first commandment 
and the first set of four is foundational to the next three. The fifth commandment is then foundational for the five that follow. So this is how it is broken out. In Exodus 21, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Foundational to everything else. You will have no other gods before me. And then the next three talk about how you do that. The first is, you shall not make yourself a carved image. Don't make an image of me. There's not an image reflecting me. Don't do it. Second, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain because his name is exalted over every name. And so you do not get access to that name to be taken in a way that is vain. Third, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath. Now, I want to mention something here because I was praying about this this week. And I was so grateful because if you look at our website and you look at people coming online, you're going to find that more than 150 people almost every Sunday gather and are watching this service at one time or another. And I'm grateful. I've talked to some of those folks and been able to encourage them. And I will tell you, if you are homebound, physically unable to be here, you live at a distance, I fully understand that. We understand that. We pray for you. We're grateful for you. But, you know, one of the things that happened with COVID-19 is we had a rash of new kinds of members that I call the floppy bunny air slipper wearing house, house coat coffee in hand church folk who say this is pretty nice this is how I'm going to do church from now on get my little floppy bunny ears going time with the music y'all sing now here's what I want you to hear if you are homebound we want to pray for you encourage you if you're traveling you're away and you tune into the service we are grateful for you if you're in a different location in the country I don't blame you for wanting to come and be part of this church family, move here. We'd love to have you. But here's what I want you to hear. If you're able-bodied, fit, and able to get in a vehicle and get here, get here. Because it's when you are together in the presence of the Lord that worship happens in a different way, but more critically, you can be part of a small group so that your life can be shaped by the lives of others. We need each other. And so if you have to be away, we understand. But if this is all about wearing those floppy bunny ear things, then I'll make you a deal. You come next Sunday, you wear them. I want to take my picture with you with those floppy things. Okay. Now, first time I've had anybody clap over floppy you know, slippers. Okay. The, the fifth commandment, which breaks the next six, is a critical commandment. Honor your father and your mother because that's foundational to every other relationship that you have. Now, I very quickly have to say that I know that some of you grew up in homes that were challenging, that you grew up in homes in which mothers and fathers perhaps did not act in an honorable way, and I grieve for that. Because I want you to know God's intention was for you to have a safe house and his intention was for you to have parents that would love you well and that would walk before you with integrity. And if you didn't get to have that kind of home, you can have it right here. But we learn how to relate to each other at the home. 
And he says, I want you to honor your father and mother so it will go well with you. And it's interesting because the very next commandment is you shall not murder. And I think, is that for the parents? <laughs> but the idea is, is that because you honor your parents, you don't take a life. Life does not belong to you. It says you should not commit adultery. Somebody else's wife or husband doesn't belong to you. You shall not steal. Their stuff isn't yours. You shall not bear false witness. Their reputation should not be stolen. And you shall not covet. Even in your heart, don't covet what someone else's has. Now, I'm going to confess something. I've had to confess more than once, God, I'm sorry for coveting. Because every time I drove by one of you guys that had a three-car garage, <laughs> I coveted. But you know what? I did it with the right heart. <laughs> I just said, Lord, one day, one day, one day, I'll have a place that all my tools can fit. But the reality is, is that he says, this is how you're going to live together. They, and they had taken this foundational commandment, though, about honor your father and mother this filial responsibility they had, and they created an end run around it so they didn't have to take care of mom and dad. They could avoid obedience to what God said so they can maintain control of their stuff. So instead of taking responsibility for their parents as they got older, what they would do is they would declare that everything I have now belongs to God. I declare it Corbin. It belongs to the Lord. It's dedicated to God. It's gifted to the temple. But here was the catch. While they were alive, they could continue to use it. While they were alive, they could continue to spin through it. And when mom and dad said, could you please help me? They could say, I'm sorry. Because I love God. I can't feed you. Now, you know instinctively how wrong that is. And Jesus looked at him and said, you're worried about foot washing, I mean hand washing, while you tell your mom and dad that they don't need a place to live or food to eat? They taken a mountain and knocked it down and took a molehill hand washing and elevated it. And you know something? Every one of us has places in our lives where we have taken mole hills and we've made them mountains. We have chosen the lesser instead of God's best. We choose the lesser any time I decide I don't have to forgive you. I know what the Bible says. I know what God commands. But in this circumstance, I've decided not to forgive you because I know better than God. Now, can we quickly, and it would be a whole sermon just talk about forgiveness, but healthy forgiveness does not mean I give you a second shot to abuse. Healthy forgiveness is about I am not going to be held by the grip of this anger and this frustration and this fear and this disappointment that I have gone through because of you so that every time I see you, that's what seizes my heart. God wants us free of that. I elevate 
a molehill up when I say, I will love the people I want to, but not the people I don't like. I'm not going to love them. They don't agree with me. I'm not going to love them. They didn't vote like me. I'm not going to love them. They don't look like me. Anytime I decide my preference is greater than God's direction, I have just taken a molehill to a mountainous level. We are called to love one another. And I, I don't mean that kind of love we talk about when we say something like this. I love you in Jesus. You know what that's code for? Because without Jesus, I just wouldn't love you at all. God wants his love to so abound in us, it overflows to others. We choose the lesser when we practice selective obedience. We choose the lesser when we place anything or anyone before Jesus. And I have to ask that question of myself, and I ask it to us. Why are we so prone to add to the purity of the gospel? Because, you know, the purity of the gospel is so simple that I understood it at six. It's so simple that, that anybody can understand that, that God loves you so much that while you and I walk this earth and in, in disregard to his heart, we commit wrongdoings that the Bible refers to as sin. And sin separates us from God because it hurts the heart of God. And God is holy. He can't be part of that which isn't holy. And so because of that separation, I need a solution. And the Bible says that God gave a solution. And his solution was not simply to say, yeah, it's all right. His solution was to actually take care of the problem. And so he sent Jesus to this earth who was found born of a, a baby, walked this earth in sinless perfection, and he literally gave himself as a sacrifice on the cross so that my sin and your sin could be atoned for, paid for. He took that on himself, the things that I deserve, that you deserve, he took it. And he paid that price on the cross, and he died on that cross. He was buried, and on the third day he resurrected, victorious over death, victorious over sin, with this promise, if you will just accept and believe that I am the Messiah, if you'll receive me as Savior and Lord, and if you will trust in me, and if you will ask me to forgive your sins and to come into your heart, I will come into your life, and I will bring all that I am with me, and I'm going to bring gifts with me, and I'm going to bring the ability to live for God with me, and all of that's going to pour into you so that you can know me, Amen. and so I can know you. And we're going to have an intimate relationship where literally every single day, every night, I can know him. I don't have to run to find out where he went. He's right here inside my heart. That's the gospel. When I could do nothing, he did everything. But why are we so prone to add to it? Why are we so prone to add other rules? Why do I clutter up following Christ with my add-ons? Well, I got a thought. Could it be 
It's because when I add things to the gospel and I add other things on, that gives me a place of control. That kind of gives me a say in what's going to happen. It's where I can exercise my will. If I broaden the path of what it means to follow Jesus with rules and preferences of my own making, then I can mistake my wandering for obedience. You need to know, Galatians 5 says this, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And I want you to hear something. God did not call you to live a life looking for exceptions. He calls you to live an exceptional life. He doesn't want you to follow him looking for how you get out of loving your neighbor or how can I avoid forgiving them or how can I not do what he told me there. He wants us to live with him in such a way and walk with him in such a way that I'm saying today I get to walk with Jesus. And this morning, God, what do you have on the agenda? Because I belong to you and I'm ready to go. And so I start my day knowing him, loving him, hearing his word, asking him for his direction. So as I walk through my day, I don't miss what he has for me. I want to ask you, in your own life, are there some molehills you've made mountains? Have you found yourself at times thinking, how can I not do that? I know you want me to love my neighbor, but how do I avoid that one? I know you want me to forgive, but how do I live without that? I know you want me to love them, but God, I've met them, and I think we need to talk. Where has God asked you? Where has he asked you to no longer look for the exception? Will you bow your heads with me? Our heads are bowed. I am mindful that we can be very well-meaning, but it's so easy to add to instead of clinging to just the purity of our Lord. And I'm not sure where the Lord may have spoken to you today, but whatever that need is, he has an answer for you. For some of you, it may be for the very first time. You need to embrace the purity of the gospel. And it's time for you to say, Jesus, here I am. I need you. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. And if that's the case, I'd love to get to visit with you. Or it could be you said, you know, I've, I've never followed the Lord in baptism. I saw that little girl baptized. I want to know more about it. We want to talk with you. Or maybe God's called you to be part of this church family. And we'd love to talk to you about that as well. Or maybe you're just saying, where do I take the next step so I can learn more about Jesus so that I can make sure that I'm focused in following the right way. And we want to help you connect with a group that will help you grow. But whatever the Lord has spoken to your heart, in just the next few moments before we stand, our deacon families will be coming here to the front. They'll be available to pray with you. But you just take that next step. Whatever the Lord has spoken to your heart, you say yes to him now. Lord Jesus... We want you to have your way in our lives. So we pray that you would awaken us so that we would cling to what is true. Release what is just an add-on that doesn't matter so that we can be genuine followers of you, Lord.
In your precious name we pray. Amen.